need to make a couple of changes in your bulletins, uh, one of which is the text that you find printed is not the text I will be reading from. Uh, it will be from the Gospel according to Matthew, but I will not include the temptation in the wilderness section. And instead, I'm going to read the whole story of Jesus' baptismal event with John the Baptist. And secondly, I will be reading not from the Bibles in your pews, but from a particular version known as the Message, which is a a colloquial version that I think does a very good job of making the biblical language more accessible to us. I pray that as we enter our season of Epiphany that we, like the wise men, are able to discern the light and the darkness as they did themselves following that star into the manger at Bethlehem, for that light is present with us in this word, beginning in the first verse of the third chapter. While Jesus was living in the Galilean hills, John, called the baptizer, was preaching in the desert country of Judea. His message was simple and austere, like his desert surroundings. Change your life. God's kingdom is here, he preached. John and his message were authorized by Isaiah's prophecy, Thunder in the desert, prepare for God's arrival, make the road smooth and straight. John, dressed in camel's hair and tied at the waist by a leather strap, lived on a diet of locusts and wild honey. People poured out of Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jordanian countryside to hear and see him in action. There at the Jordan River, Those who came to confess their sins were baptized into a changed life. When John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees, that is, the religious people, were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded, brood of snakes, what do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river Do you think a little water on your snakeskins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as your father. Being a descendant of Abraham is neither here nor there. Descendants of Abraham are a dime a dozen. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes on the fire. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life, and the real action comes next. The main character in this drama, compared to him, I'm merely a stagehand, not worthy to tie the throng on his sandal, he will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house. Make a clean sweep of all your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God and everything else that's false, he'll put out with the trash to be burned. 
Then Jesus appeared, arriving at the Jordan River from Galilee. He wanted John to baptize him. But John objected, I'm the one who needs to be baptized, not you. But Jesus insisted, do it, do it. God's work, putting things right all these centuries, is coming together right now in this baptism. So John did it. The moment Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters, the skies opened up and he saw God's spirit and it looked like a dove descending and landing on him. And along with the spirit, a voice. This is my son, chosen and marked by my love, the light of my life. This is the word of the Lord. If you've ever had the chance to introduce a speaker, always or usually in an academic setting, you know that the first thing a speaker does is to build the cred or the credibility, uh, or the, inter- the host does, is to, to build the credibility of the speaker by uh, giving the history of their academic and professional credentials. Harvard undergraduate, Rhodes Scholar, PhD from Princeton, chairman of his department, president of the consortium, author of six books, and after that introduction, we're all sitting on the edge of our seats, ready to listen to what this professional has to say. Matthew, however, must not have learned that lesson well, for as he introduces John the Baptist, he goes out of his way to talk us out of listening to what John has to say, First, he sets the stage out in the wilderness, which is never a good place in the Bible. It's where Jesus was tempted and where the people of Israel wandered for 40 years. The wilderness is where you're lost. Out in the wilderness, John is out baptizing, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, screaming at them to repent and change their lives. And with that, you wouldn't think anybody would care. But paradoxically, everybody seems to, for some reason, go out to John the Baptist in the wilderness, at least to see what's there. Maybe they just want to be entertained. Maybe they're looking for a circus. Maybe some actually do want their lives changed. Matthew sets it up that John the Baptist is even related to that irascible prophet Isaiah, who 600 years before had proclaimed, prepare the word of the the way of the Lord and make his path straight. The picture Matthew is painting for us is this eccentric, almost lunatic prophet wearing this camel's hair tunic with a leather belt around his waist, eating locusts, that's grasshoppers dipped in honey, yum, yum eat them up. The Pharisees and the Sadducees went out too, the passage says, and when John saw them, he began to scream at them. That's what we say in the South for yelling. You're screaming at me. According to the translation I read, you brood of snakes. What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? 
Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. Being a descendant of Abraham, he says, calling into question their heritage doesn't matter in the least. God can raise up these stones and turn them into children of Abraham. What matters is whether you are bearing fruit. And if you're not, thrown in the fire. We've all known people like John the Baptist, so passionate about their sense of truth that they think they are right while everyone else is wrong. It's hard to see John as anything but an antagonist in this passage, as far as I'm concerned. These people are always sending you emails to prove the point, having not fact-checked them before, cornering you at Christmas parties to pile on the evidence, and nothing you can say or do can talk them out of it. The only thing worse for them, or you, for them talking politics, is when they start talking religion. Something like, if you do not read the King James Version, then you are going to hell, which has been said to me more than once, by the way, not from anyone in this church. What I can't figure out, honestly, is why did they all go out there? Who wants that? What were they looking for? Maybe they were just so fed up with the things as they were, that they were willing to try anything, even John's fear-mongering and apocalyptic threats. They went out, it says. They went out. Even Jesus. Even Jesus. There John was, standing knee-high in the river's uh, water, and Jesus comes. John had said he was coming. John had said that he would come in, that he wasn't even worthy to buckle the Harley-Davidson boot Jesus wore, and that Jesus would come in riding in like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm back, and take names after he got his wrath. That's how John said he's coming. And no sooner had he said this than Jesus walks up gently into the water, looks at John in the face and says, baptize me for repentance and forgiveness of sins. The text literally says that John pleaded with him continuously, not me. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus finally convinced him, do it, Jesus said, for this is to fulfill God's righteousness. And every time the Bible talks about righteousness in this sense, it doesn't mean that self-righteousness that I mentioned earlier. It always means relationship about reconciliation. Righteousness is about setting things right in relationship. Do it, Jesus says, to fulfill God's righteousness. He goes down into the waters, he comes up, and when he does, he looks up into the heavens and sees the Spirit of God descending on him like the dove. Notice the Trinitarian language here. Son, Spirit, 
And then he hears a voice from God, the Father, say to him, it's ambiguous whether everyone else heard it, but Jesus heard, this is my beloved son with whom I find delight. End of story. To tell you the truth, theologians and preachers go crazy with this. Like John, we ask, why is Jesus needing baptism? The Son of God, the light of the world, the word that became flesh, the Bible says he was, tempt- he was tempted in every way as we yet without sin. Why does Jesus need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Most scholars say that he probably did so as an act of solidarity to show the people there and us that he was willing to go through, at least through his baptism, the same things that are thing that we go through. But I got to say, that just doesn't ring true to me. It seems... Uh, it, Docetic, which is a heresy we learned in seminary, that Jesus is just going through the motions of being human, that really Jesus was completely divine. He just took on this air of humanity in order to show us that he was with us, but deep down he was really God and not human at all, not going through any real suffering or any real temptation or any real sense of guilt or any real sense of shame or any real sense of ambiguity and conflict that we humans go through. Jesus was just going through the motions. To say that Jesus did this as a way to be in solidarity reeks to me a little bit like that time or a couple of times when in Atlanta I slept on the streets with the open door community to be in solidarity with the homeless. 24 hours we would eat with them, we would find some place we could sleep without being arrested, which was usually at the Methodist Church downtown. Uh, We would interact with them in order to show them our support. And then at night when we finally had a chance to go to sleep on that hard parking lot in that church, we couldn't because it was cold and brittly hard the homeless would come out dragging their cardboard boxes behind them and give them to us so that we could have a little bit of padding. Who's showing solidarity to whom in that story? It changed completely the whole understanding of who was supporting whom as they were caring for us. It was not an act of solidarity. We had a warm bed to go back to in 24 hours. Jesus lived the life of a human being every single minute of his day, 24-7, even unto his death. Why did he go? I think I've probably preached this sermon more than 20 times, and I've always struggled with that question. I get stuck in the same place. I've struggled over it, to be honest, for two weeks. It had to be more than that, just an act of solidarity. In fact, I even had it figured out yesterday at 5 o'clock. I finished the sermon. I knew it was time. I went to work out. 
and I had an epiphany. What I was going to say before that epiphany was that the crucial moment in Jesus' life is this first moment when as the Messiah, the Son of God, he has the choice of what kind of Messiah to be. Would he be the kind that John the Baptist proclaimed, riding in in power and strength, or would he instead empty himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness? That was his choice. Would he choose to be baptized like everyone else, or would he just go through the motions? What kind of crown would he wear? A crown of gold and jewels? Or a crown of water and thorns? I even had the perfect illustration. Anita and I have been watching The Crown about the life of Queen Elizabeth on Netflix. And a major part of the story is Edward VIII's abdication of the throne because he fell in love with Wallace Simpson. It caused a constitutional crisis. He gave up the throne, was never really crowned to marry her. And while that is a story of personal passion and romance, the story of Jesus, I was going to say, is a cosmic story of God's romantic passion for us, sending Jesus to abdicate the throne of the king we expect. I was going to say that Jesus chose to be baptized in order to wash away whatever scent of divinity he might still have, steeping himself in the chaotic waters of the human condition, thereby affirming his humanity rather than taking on the crown of his divinity. And at that point, then God blessed him, anointed him. This is my beloved son with whom I am delighted. As Philippians said, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took upon himself the form of a servant. Had it. And then as I'm in the shower, it hits me upside the head. It literally hits me upside the head. I promise you, I think I heard a voice. And the voice said, he came for John. And as I thought about that, I began to be completely moved. I began to weep at the thought that Jesus came for John. In all of John's righteousness, anger and judgmentalness, Jesus came, gave himself up and all his authority and power and made himself completely available for John to do with him what John does, to be baptized. It was a complete act of self-giving. He came for John. And as I wept it, it became aware to me that that's me and that's you. In our own self-righteous ways and judgmental ways and ways of 
building ourselves up at the expense of others, that's me and you. It's to us he came for. And he came to go to the lowest place possible, lower even than we can go, always below us, always willing to go under us, descended even unto hell, we say in the creed. There is no dark place, deep place that we can go where he is not already under us, holding us up even though we may not be aware. And the incredible thing about this is that awareness that comes to us not intellectually, but existentially, emotionally, that awareness is exactly what John meant, even though he didn't understand it when he said, change your life. There is no place Jesus will not go to show us how we are loved, even if it costs his life. Amen.